emphasis on the uh, Sermon on the Mount, and we are calling this uh, series that we are currently in, we're calling it Kingdom Kingdom Living. Because um, it becomes a little difficult for us when we, when we just think about living our lives for ourselves, when we start to just think about how we want to do life rather than what God's calling us to do life. And so as we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been telling us specific ways in which we step into kingdom living, how we live our lives for the glory of God and bringing his kingdom from up there down here. And that's what, what Jesus is telling us to do. But now we're coming to one of those, those points in the Bible that becomes very controversial for a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons. And here's what Jesus says in verse, verses 13 and 14 in Matthew. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter in are in it by are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So what we have Jesus telling us is, is that over here we have the, the one gate that, that people, a lot of people are going through is going to be the wide gate. And the wide gate, it, it is one that is kind of default for most people, and it is easy for them. But the problem with the wide gate is that it leads every place, everywhere you're going. It doesn't matter what path you think you're on. Your path is leading you somewhere. The question is, where is it leading you? If you're going through the wide gate and your path is easy, then Jesus says that it is destruction that you are headed for. On the other hand, he says that for other people, they're going to go through this other gate, and it is called the narrow gate. And the narrow gate, um, not very many people are going to go through it, accordingly to the ones that are going through the wide gate. And, and this gate, uh, the narrow gate is hard. The reason why it's hard is because it is not something that is natural for us. That's a narrow gate. And what, what happens with the narrow gate then is that it leads actually in a different place. It leads to life. But it is, it's not easy. It's hard. So uh, we, we need to find out what Jesus means when he says hard and easy, what, what the wide gate looks like and what the narrow gate looks like. And the problem is, is that there are a lot of people, when they read this, they have a concern about what it's talking about because they're, they're thinking kind of people. And so when they hear the term narrow gate, they, they think that this is a call from Christianity uh, that certain beliefs are wrong, and it, and it calls that behaviors are immoral. And therefore, it impinges on the human freedom by telling people that they must think and how they must live their lives. Furthermore, Christians believe that they know absolute truth. Therefore, they believe that people who disagree with them are wrong, and not just wrong, but condemned before God. Because not only does Jesus speak about the narrow gate, 
but he also tells us that he's the door to eternity, to God, and to heaven. Matter of fact, he said that in John chapter 10. He said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. And so not only does Jesus say that there's a um, narrow gate to go through, he says, I'm actually the door that you go through to find eternity. The way you find yourself to God is through me, the door. And so now we have Jesus making these bold statements over here. The first one is that there's this narrow way, the hard way, that you find life. And he says on the other side of that is this wide gate that a lot of people are traveling. It's a wide path, and all the people on that path, they're going to this place, and it is called destruction. And, and it's, you, you, if you tell people that the path that they're on is destructive and it's destruction for their soul, they somehow get offended by that. But it's easy. That's the way people want to go. That's what they want to do. They want to get involved and they want to do all these different things. And so, again, what, what Jesus is saying, there's this concern that people have about what Jesus actually means. And their, their kind of concern goes like this. They believe that Christians must be intolerant to atheists, to agnostics, to people of other religions, and even to other kinds of Christians, like Catholics versus Protestants, liberals versus conservatives. It's even like on the level of the WRCC misfits versus everybody else. That would be you. So, it's often thought um, that what we need is humility, and humility requires us giving up claims of exclusive truth. Because if we affirm um, nobody can really claim to know what is true, then instead I have my truth, you have your truth, but nobody really knows, and we're in no position to judge anybody because that will all lead to tolerance and acceptance because nobody would call anybody else wrong. And so the, the, um, what people are talking about then on the easy path is, is that sometimes it just all falls apart right in your face and you don't even know it. That was the path to destruction, just in case you didn't pick that up. I planned that. So we have, we have uh, tolerance. And tolerance is um, something that our world is really talking about in our day. And along with that, they have us to have acceptance as well. They want us to be tolerant of each other. They want us to accept everything. They want us to accept what people say. They want us to accept that all paths lead to God. So this all leads to, to God. And so it doesn't matter what you believe. Even if you believe nothing, that's okay because it's all good. You just don't come down on anybody else. But that's not what Jesus is saying. And so what Jesus is saying is that that often the narrow gate or the gate that is narrow leads to, um, to life, but other people view it as what that narrow gate is narrow-mindedness. They think what Jesus is telling us is that you have to be narrow-minded because God's narrow-minded. That's why the path is hard. 
you just can't enjoy life anymore. And here's what's interesting. If you really look carefully into Jesus and you examine the life and the teaching of, of what he has for us, you will notice what looks to be to our culture like a very strange paradox. Because on the one hand, Jesus makes the statement that there are outrageously, staggeringly exclusive in our eyes, these statements like these ones. He is the door. He, there's the hard way to go through the narrow gate. And, and so he has these all, all of these things. And one time he even prayed this prayer. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you, whom you have sent. Now what he's saying is not, not only is this the, the hard way to go here on this path, but what Jesus is saying is that on this hard path, that there is only um, God, and the way that you get to know God on this path is because it is He's the true God. People don't like hearing that. They don't hear like they don't like to hear that God's Jesus says there is only one God. And not only is he only one God, but he is the true God that you get to know. It's not all paths lead to, to where we're going. And then Jesus, on top of talking about how true God is and that there is only one God, there aren't many gods. I mean, there are, there are people who believe that there are many gods, and those many gods are going to lead to heaven. But what Jesus says is that that is false. Or if you want to put it in another term, it's wrong to believe that there are many gods in many ways to, to get to God. And so this is what the wide path is creating. And over here, on, this, on uh, what Jesus is, says, is saying about the true God, Jesus also said in, in um, John chapter 14, verse 6, he said that I am the, the way, and he said I am the truth, and he said, I am the life. He's making a really bold statement because if, he, if he's the way, the truth, and the life, he's the only way that leads to the Father. He's the only way that leads to heaven. He's the only way you can get there. And so now you have Jesus saying, he's the way, the truth, and the life. There's only one true God, and then the path to get there is hard, and that Jesus is the door to that path. And it's very confusing to some people and very discouraging because they're going like, if Jesus is saying that, then, then he must be wrong because we don't know truth. But here's the thing about Jesus. He didn't present his teachings as optional suggestions for a better life. He claimed to know how things are. He claimed that what he said wasn't just wise, it was true. He claimed this is the truth no matter um, what is going on around in our world? Nothing else in the world is going to get us there. And yet Jesus, who made these claims that were staggeringly and breathtakingly exclusive, pursued relationships and relational connections with people who were breathtakingly scandalous and inclusive. Because if you think about it, Jesus is the, the teacher, a rabbi in his day. He's bringing a teaching to, to the people of Israel that they've never heard before. And he's teaching it with authority. And they're going like, this man 
is, is giving us something we've never had before, and it makes total sense. And so what happens is Jesus says this. He says, you know, he said, I am the way and the truth. And he said, there's only one true God. And, and so, and there's only one God. So what we have going on is Jesus making this, these uh, very exclusive claims, but he's very inclusive in what he does because he deliberately touched an untouchable leper. He allowed a known prostitute to bathe his feet with tears. He commended a hated Roman centurion. He partied with despised tax collectors. All, all, all the people that the rest of the religious people would have nothing to do with. And so here you have Jesus saying there's only one way. It's only through God. And by the way, I am the way, the truth, and the life to God. But yet over here, on the other hand, he's inclusive to all these outcasts and the, the low life of people, the biggest sinners of our community. So he's including these people, but he's going to exclude other people from coming to heaven because they're not going through the right way, through him, through Jesus, through the door. Now let me give you a very striking example of his relational inclusiveness. It's recorded that in the Bible that there were Ten lepers that came to see Jesus for healing. And he healed all ten of those lepers. Now, in those ten lepers, there's at least one of those lepers is a Samaritan. And the Samaritans and the, and the Jews did not get along. They did not like each other. They couldn't stand them. And the way that we know that, that there were at least one Samaritan in this process of being healed is because then Jesus told them after he healed them, he commanded them to go and show yourself to the priests. Plural. If it would have been just the Jewish lepers that he healed, he would have said, go and show yourself to the priest. Because there's only one priest, it's the high priest that's working in the temple that can clear you. The priest kind of operated as a doctor in the sense that when you came, you were healed from leprosy, they were the ones that would pronounce you clean so that you could enter back into community, so that you could enter back into worship, so that you could enter back into all the different things that are going on. That is the thing that, that Jesus um, showed them. But when he said, go show yourself to the priest, the reason he did this is because there's obviously the, the Samaritans had their own priest that took care of them because it was a little bit different. And then the Jews had their own priests. So he told them, there's at least one Samaritan that Jesus healed, and they go and show themselves to priests to be cleansed. Now, here's the thing I want you to see, is that Jesus does not say, now that I have healed you, you must all convert to my religion. He doesn't enter into a healing relationship with unclean, orthodox, non-Jewish lepers and then actually he sends them to their own Jewish or Samaritan priest pronounced cleanliness, to be clean. And Jesus is now, thinks in relationship, is transcending all human religious categories. That's what Jesus does when you're in relationship with him. All of a sudden, when you start to step into relationship, all the rules and all the religious regulations and all those things that you followed all of your life, Jesus is now saying, forget those things. 
That's not what, what's important. Here's the two things that you need to know. You need to know that you need to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's the first thing you need to know. And then the second thing you need to do is to love others as you love yourself. That, that takes care of every rule, every regulation that's been put out there. And, and so we have all of these people who are missing this dynamic, especially his followers. They're missing the dynamic that Jesus is saying that we need to get narrower in our devotion to God and be more broad-minded in our love of reaching out to human beings. That's the narrowness of, the, of this teaching that Jesus gives us. The narrowness is, is thinking it's only God, it's only about God, there's only one way, and it's only through the, the blood of Jesus that we come to relationship with God. That's the narrowness of our coming to God, but our broadness is reaching out to cross the aisle to everyone, regardless of their religious affiliation, regardless of their sexual orientation, regardless of whether they love God or hate God. Jesus didn't, didn't set it up and say, look, you only love those who are like you and love the others. That's not what Jesus ever said. And so when we go back to the original passage that we're looking at, enter by the narrow gate, for the wide gate is easy, and it leads to destruction. And, and, and it's because Jesus is saying this whole thing in here, and another aspect of that is that... Um, That's an error. That religion plays a, a big role in our lives in keeping us from stepping into relationship with God. We, we all suffer from a hangover from re religion because we've got thoughts in our mind that these things that we've been taught all of our lives since we were kids, these little rules that we've been taught, but you can't find them in the Bible, that those rules are absolutely true. And if you obey those rules, then you're going to get yourself into the kingdom of God. That's religion at its finest. And it, it, it's, it's on the broad road. It's on the wide road. On the, going through the wide gate that leads to destruction. And that's why Jesus is calling people away from that. What Jesus was, was doing was he was relentlessly narrow in his devotion to God, but outrageously broad-minded in his relationship with other people. Why is that? Why did he do that? Well, it's some people think maybe he got the, you know, he's a little bit wishy-washy about his message, that he couldn't really commit to one thing or the other. Some have said that maybe the claims of Jesus and his authority uh, of religious convictions got made up by Paul and, and Peter and the other apostles, and what they did is, is they, they took what, some of what Jesus did and then they rewrote it to retrofit it back into the gospel. And some people say that it wasn't even clear about his own identity. Or maybe, just maybe, the truth that Jesus taught actually explains the way he led life. Maybe the truth he taught is not in tension with the life he led. Maybe he explains it. Maybe the possibility of finding deep truth, offering broad tolerance, and not, are not mutually incompatible, but maybe they're mutually inseparable. You will notice that when you think about the topic of tolerance and narrowness, we go through this, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus did not command tolerance. He didn't say, be thou tolerant. Why is that? Well, tolerance is kind of a minimalist quality to it. It has a minimalist 
quality. It's, it's not very deep. And, and the Latin word tolerenta means to put up with or to endure. And that's not exactly what the soul craves. Now, when Lorinda and I got married, Lorinda did not, did not say, I promise to tolerate you from this day forward for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, and to put up and endure with you until death shall bring relief. That is not what she said. When you have your little kids and you take them to bed at night and you read them a, a story and then you, you tuck them in at night and you kiss them and you, you say, honey, sweet dreams, I tolerate you so much. When some people have birthdays, we don't sing, I I tolerate you, I tolerate you. I'm stuck with your existence. What else could I do? <laughs> now, I know some of you are thinking, hey, that might be a good song to hang on to. I'm just telling you, that's not, that's not what Jesus had in mind. That's not what God had in mind. You are made by God not to be tolerated. You are made by God to be celebrated. And we know this because we know this from the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus doesn't say tolerate your enemies. He doesn't say put up with those who persecute you and uh, let alone people who just think differently. He doesn't say if you're, uh, um, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember your brother or sister has something against you and you don't like them and you don't like how they believe or the way they act, tolerate them. He doesn't say if someone forces you to go with them one mile, put up with it. Tolerance is... Um, a very good thing as far as it goes, but it really doesn't go that far. It can barely go a mile. It doesn't go to. Tolerance is better than intolerance. But tolerance is pretty a low bar standard. It doesn't take much to be tolerant and to get over it. You can tolerate somebody without loving them, but you cannot love someone without intolerance. Jesus is inviting us now to do kingdom living, as I said. He wants us to step up and to live in his kingdom. Because when we live in his kingdom, then we're in the sphere of God's will, where the primary law, the royal law, if you remember from last week, is, is love because God is love. So love your neighbor as yourself, love your enemy, and love will certainly include the virtue of tolerance. It surely will. But, but that leads to the question, why are we to practice tolerance? Tolerance itself, which is talked about a lot in our day, actually requires a foundation. If it's going to be enduring virtue, it needs a rationale, and it needs something to stand on. So now in our day, we have uh, tolerance and acceptance that's going on, and, and it, it's telling us to accept many different gods, many different paths, to God, and all those are false, and then you can have your own religion. You can have your own religion to do whatever you want. That's what the, the, the world is telling us. But that's not what Jesus is telling us. Tolerance is built on the claim that every human being has dignity and has equal worth. And we would all agree with that, because that's an absolute claim, that all people have that. And if you undermine it by saying there is no such thing as a claim to be able to know truth, you end up eroding 
the very ground on which the practice of tolerance stands. In other words, the cure for arrogance and intolerance are, and which are really horrible sins and often infect the church as much as anywhere other place, maybe even more, is, is that we should embrace uncertainty. We really don't know. But really, the cure is, is not that we embrace um, uncertainty, but we embrace humility because we are all created in the image of God. That's why you respect the other person. That's why you have, have uh, good in your heart for the other person is because they are the image bearer of God just as you are the image bearer of God. You can be right and humble. It's possible. You can be uncertain and arrogant. Now here's a quote from about 100 years ago from a Christian writer. His name is G.K. Chesterton. And here's what he said. What we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the origin of ambition, that is, the will of pride, and has settled upon the origin of conviction, that is, the mind or um, confidence in logic or reason and the ability to know where it was never meant to be. A person was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly the reverse. And he wrote that a hundred years ago. So things haven't really changed a lot over the hundred years. Now in our day, we are all very sure of ourselves. We are very confident of who we are and what we can do. But we're not confident and we're very unsure to know anything for certain. Chesterton also said this, We are on the road to producing a race of people too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. Let that sink in for a minute. If you don't understand it, come and tell me. I'll show you one. But what Jesus taught is the greatest foundation for both tolerance and love resides in God and in his kingdom. People should be um, prized because they are loved by God. People should be free because God gave them a will. God gave them a little kingdom where they get to exercise their own dominion. All of that brings us now to the narrow gate that Jesus is talking about in our text, which is often misunderstood, but it's so important to what we're going to be learning to do as Jesus teaches us. The narrow gate is not narrow-mindedness. The narrow gate is not doctrinal correctness. It is not always being right and having every out, everybody else being wrong. The narrow gate is not religious intolerance. The narrow gate is doing what Jesus said to do. So the way that Jesus says that that looks like on this path, the hard path, is that we are to do this if we are going to be on this path that leads to where God's calling us to go. It's to obey. That's really what the whole, the whole concept of coming through the narrow gate is all about. Because if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and God is the only true God, and the road is hard, and Jesus is the, the door, then, then what he is asking us to do is 
obey him in all that he says. So he's here and he's here. That's the whole beginning of getting on the hard path, of making our way to life. This whole life comes together on Jesus. And, and that, that's what he's calling us to do. And so we're, we're not being called to believe something different. We're not calling to step into a new religion. What Jesus says is, I want you to understand who I am and then do the things that I'm calling you to do. Obeying him in all things is the narrow gate. So then what's the broad gate? Well, the broad gate then is anything other than obeying. Because that's what they say. Because if you get stuck into this, this whole thing about obeying as God's calling you to do, obeying the Bible, then, then that's just wrong because now you can't be free. If you're restricted to obeying, you just can't be free. And, and so what do we do about that? Because if we think that, that this is what God's calling us to do, to obey, what is it that Jesus says for us to do? Here's what he says in John chapter 8. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now that word abide, that word abide also is known as obey. So it says that if we obey, if we ob or abide, and we are truly his disciples, then we'll know the truth, and the truth will set us free. Now those words, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Those words are written on more universities in this country than any other saying uh, that's ever been written. You go to a, a, a university and there's a good chance you're going to see that if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. The problem is, is that they have left out the prior phrase, if you abide, obey my teaching then you are my disciples and you will know the truth. If you obey, in our day, we generally think that freedom is the opposite of having to obey anything. We think of freedom of, as being the absence of restriction. Now, let me help you understand what restriction looks like because it's really important for us to get this picture because I'm going to put um, these two little critters right here, okay? And, and then I'm going to put one over here as well and you know, this is, this is my art, right? So. so, these fish, we would think that if you're going to be free, that, that in order to be free, you live without any restrictions in your life. But the problem is, is that in order for a fish to really be free, he has to, to live within the restriction of, you guessed it, water. Because if you take the fish out of water and, and you put him out on the floor to live and you go, here you are, little Freddy Finn Fiffer. You're free from that, that water. Go and be yourself. Be who God meant you to be. And outside the restriction of water, little Freddy dies. And you flush him down the toilet. That's what happens. And so when a fish is actually living within the restrictions that God gave him to live in, he is, he is free to be himself, and he's happy. But once that fish does not live within the restrictions that God's given to him, well, you know what happens. Burial at sea. And it's not a pleasant thing. So why does Jesus call us to do this whole thing, to, to, to live this way? 
Because what, what he's saying is, you are really my, my disciple, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's like the water that makes a fish free. Freedom is finding the right restriction for your life. It's swimming in the moral and spiritual reality of God and his kingdom, from which my little nature, your little nature, were made. If you obey the teaching of Jesus, you will be free. But the question that is really pressing on this, and this is all leading to, and it's going to be the, present, the, the question that presses on you this morning, and the, the question you're going to have to wrestle with, is all of this that Jesus is talking about right here is all leading to one thing. It's all leading to life, but that life where we have freedom, that life where we know the truth, where we live in the truth, where we know God, and we say it's hard, but it's hard only because now we're going against our nature and we're living in the nature of Jesus Christ instead. And what Jesus is really saying is that to live in these restrictions and to do all of these different things, we have to um, become this person to him. A disciple. That's what all of this is about. Jesus is the door. The, the, the narrow gate leads to the, the hard path, the narrow path that leads to life. And when you live a life of obedience and you're living in the restrictions that give you freedom, when you do that, now you become a disciple of Jesus. The problem is, is that there are a lot of people who have come to the conclusion that they are, and I'm going to put this word right alongside her, Christians. You might be surprised by me, by me saying that, that. That there are a lot of Christians on this path right over here. They're on the wide path. You know why? Because what they've done is they've heard the message about if you believe in Jesus, he'll rescue you from the pit of hell. And they're going like, sign me up. Put me on that bus. I, don't, I want my, life my, my fire insurance. I don't want to go there. And so what they've done is they've become Christians. But the problem with all of that idea of becoming Christians is the fact that Jesus nowhere one time ever said, go out and make Christians. You will never find it in the Bible. You will never find one place where Jesus said, you need to become a Christian. You need to make Christians. You need to become the, this Christian community. Jesus never, ever said that. What did Jesus tell us to do? He said, you are to go into all the world and to make disciples. That's what the whole process is, that we are supposed to be disciples. And when you become a disciple, what is your job then? To make disciples. You're a disciple making disciples. That's what the, Jesus told, called us to do. And, and so, you know, the problem that we have is, is that everybody here is somebody's disciple. Everybody is. You can't get away from it because all that a disciple is, it's not even really a religious term when, when Jesus gave it back in the day. The disciple is a student of someone who is teaching them. We all started off being disciples of our parents because we had to learn how to, to talk. We had to learn how to walk. We had to learn how to do math. We had to learn how to behave. We had to learn how to fit in society. Then we had to learn when to talk and when not to talk. Then we had to learn where to go and where not to go. And then we had to learn what to do with our money and how to spend it and how to save and how to have a budget. 
We had to learn all those things, and so we were discipled. And usually that discipleship starts, because we're learning from somebody, it usually starts with our parents first. And then probably the second people that are influential into a, into a child's life would be teachers, because the teachers now are teaching them things too. But sometimes the teachers get confused, and they start teaching morality that they have no business teaching to their kids, because that's the parents' job to do. And the, and the church should be influential into a, a child's life to help them to under, know who Jesus, understand and know who Jesus is. That, that's the whole thing of discipleship. And, and so the, the big question is, who's your disciple? Or, or who's your leader? You're a disciple to somebody, so who's discipling you? Is it Jesus? Is it society? Is it cultural norms? Is it some author that you're reading over here that's telling you something that may not line up with the Bible? Who are you being discipled by? That's the question. And the other question goes along with that is, are you a disciple of Jesus this morning? Or are you one of these guys that has become a Christian because someone said, if you want to be a Christian, you have to pray this prayer. And then you prayed a prayer that was written down on a card. Now, I'm not saying that that wasn't wrong. I'm just saying that there's been a lot of people that prayed that prayer that, that they, went, they thought they were going through the narrow gate by praying that prayer. And all they did was they went from the narrow gate and then they took a shortcut over here. And they went to the wide gate because now they're, they're saying, I prayed the prayer, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a Christian, and so I've got my place in heaven, but man, doing this stuff over here, especially this word, obeying, are you kidding me? That's the hard part. That's the hard way. I don't want to do that. I like this over here. I like living over here without restrictions because I know that any sin I commit, God has to forgive me because I'm asking him to. Now, just in case you think that, that God has this idea that the only way that you can, that, that, that there's only going to be a few people that ever get into heaven, that, that's, not, that's not even God's, and God, God's not saying, listen, I've chosen a few people to go to heaven, and the rest of you, so sad, too bad for you. That is not the message of the gospel. Matter of fact, in 2 Peter, when Peter wrote his letter to the church, he said this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should re reach repentance. You see, God's heart is that every person who comes onto planet Earth would, would get to know who he is. They would step into repentance. They would confess with their mouth and believe in their heart who Jesus is, and then they would be saved, and then they would go through. That's going through the narrow gate, and it's a hard path because now we're going against everything the cultural norms are telling us. We're going against our own inclination. We're going against our default, default mode now. Now we're going and we're obeying Jesus in all that he commanded us to do. He's telling us to do these things. He wants us to walk that way. So, you have a decision to make today. The decision you have to make today is, are you going to be a disciple of Jesus? Are you going to go through the narrow gate? Are you going to go through the door? Are you going to start stepping onto this path? Because here's the truth. You now know. You are now responsible. You now, some of you are going like, I wish I didn't come to church today. Because <laughs> now I know something. And what you know is truth. Because it's from the true God.
It's from Jesus himself, and he told us this is what we're supposed to do. And, and so what, what your job is this week is that you need to go to the Bible, to the, to the Sermon on the Mount, and you need to start reading it, and you need to ask this question. God, what would you have me do? And I'll guarantee you that if you go through that and you ask God what to do, he will help you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Now listen to me. Let me just tell you a little story back when I was like 18. My best friend and I decided we'd work all summer, all fall. And then in the new year, 1978, we would jump in his, get this, Datsun 340 Z. We were hotter than a $2 pistol in the flea market. And we would take his little car, and then we would go over to the Oregon coast, and we would zip down the Oregon coast all the way south of San Francisco. Then we'd cut to Sacramento. Then we would go to Boise, I, we'd go to Reno, Boise, Idaho, and then, you know, on home. A big trip for us. Two, two fellas just out of high school. On the way down, we'd stop at this place in southern Oregon on the coast, well, kind of off the coast a little bit. It's called the Oregon Caves. It's got stalactites and stalagmites, and it's this amazing place. You walk in through this entrance, and you go probably about a half a mile back in, and they've got it all lit up. And then when you get back there in the back, and it's a room about as big as this room right here, they turn off the lights back there a half a mile into this cave. It is so dark, you can do this, you can't see a thing. And, and it's, it's amazing. And then the, back in the day when I did it, they had a guy standing way over on the other side of the room who had a candle. He would light that candle, and it would light up. And you could actually see the people around you from the light candle in that dark room. So that was a great cave. We stopped and saw my childhood friend named Doug. And Doug says, you guys were at the Oregon Cave? Yeah, I'm going to show you one better. And we're like, all right, let's go. And so Doug took us to this place. We, we drove and we parked on this logging road, and then we hiked two miles, and you couldn't even see the path. He knew how to get to the entrance of this cave. And when you got to the entrance of the cave, it wasn't any taller than this table right here. It was about that tall. And when you got inside, you could stand up a little bit. And my friend Scott, he's six foot four. <laughs> and so we got inside, and Doug says, now listen, you guys have got to follow me, and you have to trust me because I'm going to take you. You were at the Oregon Cave. You were in the big room. Yeah, I'm going to take you to a room that's probably seven times that big. This thing's mammoth. It's huge. And so we're going like lead on. The problem with going that way is because we had little flashlights, and they weren't that great. And as we crawled through the cave and we were going through these different passages, I would never be able to find my way out. I wouldn't be able to find my way in. Doug was leading us because he'd been there many times. And we came to this one place where we had to get down on our knees, and then we got just lower on our knees, and then we were actually crawled probably for 25 feet on our stomachs because the top of the, the, the ceiling in, in the little space we were in was probably just like three inches above our head. If you lift your head, you'd bang your head. And, and Doug was up there, and all we could do is we could hear him saying, follow me, I know it's a little bit frightening, but don't give up, don't panic, just keep following me. It's dark, I know. Follow my voice. I will lead you. I will lead you. You have to trust me. And it's in this little narrow passage 
that we're going through. And then all of a sudden, we come out, and you put your hand up, and you can feel there's a wall going up. And you come and you stand up, and all of a sudden, you're standing up upright, and you're going, and Doug had turned off his flashlight. Our flashlights were off. It was completely dark. And then he turned on his flashlight. And it lit up the most magnificent thing I'd ever seen underground in my life. It made the Oregon caves look like, you know, it was an amusement park or something. It was spectacular. And the reason I tell you is, is that there are many of us at this point right now who we feel like we're in a dark spot in our life. We're in this narrow, dark spot, and we can't see anything. We can't, we can't do anything. But what you need to do is you need to keep listening because God is calling. He is saying, listen to my voice. Keep moving. Keep coming. You're not alone. I know it's dark. I know it's hard. I know it's not easy. But you just keep coming. I will tell you what to do. You just keep going, and we will get there together. We will get there, and when we get there, it's going to be spectacular. And I'm not talking about the end of your life. I'm talking about the kingdom of God coming here and now, God's will being done here and now, we experiencing the greatness of who God is. And so this week, if you're thinking about becoming a disciple and you feel like you're in a dark spot, I want you to listen to his voice. And when you get up and when you go to bed, I want you to, to be looking for God. And when you go to work and when you come home, be listening for his voice. And when you have a problem and when you're filled with joy, be listening for the voice of God. This week, get a Bible, read through the words of the Sermon on the Mount and ask God, would you please speak to me? And anytime you think of it, just practicing doing what he says to do through the Sermon on the Mount. Obey him, but don't obey him just to obey him for the sake of obeying him. Obey him to revel in the thought of obeying him. Oh, maybe obeying him with his help is, in fact, the greatest opportunity you will ever get in your life. So make your fundamental idea that you are a disciple of this man called Jesus, the God, our way, truth, and the life. Be it's utterly narrow in your devotion to him. Make it that way but incredibly broad-minded in your interactions and acceptance and love and conversations and tolerance and celebration of people radically different from you. And remember, when you go through that gate, no matter how narrow the path, no matter how dark the cave you are in, you are never alone. Matter of fact, when you think you are the loneliest, that's probably when you're most in touch with Jesus. So that's what Jesus told us to do. Here's, here's our task. This is the task of this church. And it's found in Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now you see, it's, we've got three things to do there. We've got to make disciples. We're to baptize those disciples. And then we're supposed to teach them. That's what we are to do here. But I also want you to remember this. I want you to hear this because there are going to be thousands, there are going to be millions, there might be billions of people who enter into the kingdom of God. And the way we know that is because in Revelation chapter 7, it says this. And this, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages standing before the 
the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches. This is Palm Sunday. In their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the day. Thousands upon millions of people. Because, because what we think are a few, to God is going to be millions. And he is not willing that any should perish. But the only way we step into that, the only way we know that, the only way we experience that is when we make the decision to quit being a cultural Christian and start to be a disciple of Jesus. So the question to you is, who are you? You have a choice to make today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray particularly that you will help us to understand these words that Jesus brought to us because they're odd. They're really difficult. And, and sometimes we just don't want to. And I pray for me and I pray for everybody listening, everybody who has this desire, God, that they would want Jesus. They would want his life. They'd want to be his disciple. That they would prize the narrow gate above all else. Lord, forgive us and help us not to be narrow-minded in it, not to be intolerant. We may have the right to be, but the kind of people you're calling us to, we shouldn't want to be. And then, God, I pray for everyone who's in a cage. Maybe it's their health. Maybe it's a kid they loved who they had to let go of. Has, maybe it's something that's going on that's just so painful they have a hard time even thinking about it. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe they're caught in shame or hurt. Whatever the cave is, God, just keep whispering, you're not alone. You're not alone. You're not alone. You're never alone. Don't stop. Keep coming. I'm with you. Whisper those words. We need to hear them from you. And so we pray this together. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.